you know, you've got a certain subset of products that you offer and they might be fixed. But is your messaging fixed? No. Is the kind of customer you go after fixed? No. Is the use case of how they buy from you and why they buy from you fixed? Absolutely not. All three of those things can constantly be, aka, pivoted in real time. It's just about you being iterative in how you construct a hypothesis, test it, and learn from it. Learn modern marketing that you can use to grow your business in today's competitive landscape. This is Digital Marketing Masters with Matt and Carrie Rouse. Welcome to Digital Marketing Masters. My name is Matt Rouse, and today we're on with Sean Shepard to talk about pivoting and product market fit. And I want to introduce Sean a little bit because he has a really excellent bio that I think will give you an idea about where he's coming from. So Sean is a serial entrepreneur VC and co-founder of GrowthX and the GrowthX Academy. He's had three successful exits and has successfully grown dozens of early stage companies across a wide variety of products and markets. He's recently named number two online sales influencer and contributor at the Huffington Post. So Sean, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Matt. Hey, it's great to have you on. And I wanted to know, you're the founder of GrowthX and the GrowthX Academy. I wanted to know if you could tell us a little bit more about yourself and what GrowthX is and what you guys do there. Yeah, we got started about seven years ago. We were a group of serial entrepreneurs turned uh, investors, tech investors in particular. We were all primarily in that industry. We went from being serial entrepreneurs to investors to frustrated investors because companies weren't succeeding. And the reason we found out they weren't succeeding was is they weren't having trouble creating and building products and solutions. They were having trouble creating and building markets that would buy their solutions. So we set out to try and solve our own problem. How could we help our companies grow? And in the last decade or so, we've also kind of shifted in society to this age of applied innovation or applied technology where it's gotten cheaper and easier to build and, and launch products. But as a result, it's also been more difficult and expensive to get people to buy those products. So our goal was to come up with a way to solve that problem. So we developed a program that we call MXP, our Market Acceleration Program, that we would run all of our startups through. And it helped reduce the failure rate, improve their scale rates, and the overall return on our investments. And we launched a venture capital fund around it. Uh, now on our, our second fund as GrowthX, third fund as Partners, we have over you know 43 investments across a wide variety of businesses and industries. The other thing we learned through the course of doing that was is that our companies needed a lot of talented help to help them grow, right? We needed people who knew digital marketing. We needed people who knew work like you do, creative, ad buying, SEO, SEM, growth hacking. Uh, we needed great sales professionals that knew how to, to take something to market. And we needed great UX designers and data scientists. And there really wasn't a place to go get those people. They all came from traditional work experience. So we launched an academy, Teach It. And that's what Growth Academy is about, is a place to reskill and upskill a workforce in the things that we think matter most when it comes to trying to grow a company. And then through the course of that, we started to work with large corporations on helping them innovate and create new digital products, especially now when analog experiences are going to be, let's say, less important and, and a blend of digital plus analog is going to be our future, I think. And then we started to work with governments and economic development organizations in countries around the world who were looking to build their own ecosystems to be much like what we are here in Silicon Valley, where I reside. So I spend most of my time now evangelizing and talking about the future of what it is to build a coordinated tech ecosystem and, and how to help companies grow. And in particular now, I'm doing a lot of these kinds of interviews because uh, I'm stuck at home like you are, Matt. Right. We've been in our self-imposed quarantine where I am as of the recording date. And actually, I should speak about the recording date. We're actually recording on April 14th. But our plan, because, you know, you've got some great information I think can help businesses. So I talked to our sound guy actually before we recorded. He's going to try and get this edited so we can get it out tonight or tomorrow. So we should be able to get this to market in less than a day, which is great. And that's a perfect example of the age of applied technology. That's right. Quick and easy to get it out there, but can you get adoption for it? I certainly hope people will like it. <laughs> right. And, you know, we, we really organically grew our podcast out of people we knew already kind of spreading the word and doing our normal, normal, you know, social media kind of thing and that we didn't do a heavy advertising or anything, but 
you know, we've been able to build it to about a little over 10,000 listeners now organically, which is great. But I wanted to hit on some topic. I don't want to toot my own horn here while we're going on. But so during the, the, I was saying that we've been self-quarantined, I think 32 days now. And Oregon, I mean, around where we live, the, the number of cases is, is very, very minimal at this point. We already, as a company, work from home. So it hasn't been a change for us, you know, really from a work standpoint, except that I used to take a lot of in-person meetings, which we're just doing those over Zoom now. So it hasn't been that much of a change. But a lot of companies, they're really stuck, right? Because they are, you know, retail or restaurant. They, in some cases, are completely shut down. But there's a lot of companies that are just kind of in transition. They don't know what to do. And that's kind of what we're going to talk about here. Do you think that the product market fit for most companies is going to change now just because of like you were saying, there's not going to be those analog experiences anymore by analog, you know, like in-person experiences anymore. Or do you think it's going to shift to something like you said, more of a hybrid model? I think two things about that. I think number one, product market fit has shifted for everybody who was in the process of trying to get it or has recently gotten it just by virtue of the fact that their markets have changed. Uh, not because their product has changed, which is a key tenet of what product market fit is about anyway, right? It's not about your product or your, it's about your market. It's not about, you know, your solution. It's about the person's problem. Nobody cares about our products. They care about their problems. And if you can hopefully get their attention in a way that addresses their problem and, and, and the resulting need from it, then you have an opportunity through what I call problem solution fit to find ultimately product market fit. And the, and the key difference is, is what's scalable and what is not. So, so it has fundamentally shifted in the, in the now for those people. And then overall, yes, I think the landscape and how product market fit is going to be defined for everyone will be adjusted. When that happens and the, de- the degree to which that change occurs is yet to be seen. I probably, like you, Matt, have been around since, you know, I've seen a lot of, of economic crises in my lifetime as an adult, especially beginning with the 87 crash going through the dot bomb era and then eventually 9-11 and then and then 09, 08 mortgage crisis. But I think this one is much more like 9-11 with respect to how it's going to change the way we do things permanently. Again, the degree of change is the thing that's yet to be seen, but I do believe it feels to me for the people that don't already work in distributed environments, like, yeah, I have offices in different markets and we leverage those and they're really important, especially with the academy and creating in-person community and ecosystem businesses. But I've been working from home off and on, who knows, 20 years, right? So it's no change. And to you as a distributed environment, it's no change. But to my clients and to my friends and governments and large corporations and in venture funds and, and in startups, many of them have never done this. I'm watching a very dear friend of mine who's the CIO of one of the world's largest financial institutions. Also happens to be my my neighbor, he's had to take his entire organization from 95% in office to 100% out of office in a matter of weeks. And now uh, he's also seeing that not only was he able to successfully do it, people are just as productive. They're not as mentally and spiritually stable as they were before for understandable reasons. But they're starting to now question why do they need all this expensive real estate in, in New York and San Francisco and London and Hong Kong. That's um, true. And is it necessary to have such a massive footprint? Do we change the way that we, you know, when we see each other in person and how often? So traditional high-touch businesses with a high-cost basis that had to charge a lot in order to recover that from a business model perspective, they need to start thinking about how they deliver digital experiences that are equal to the analog experiences, if they can at all. So the conversation's going on. So so as someone providing a product in that world, you're going to have to do the same thing. I know people had spoken before about like the retail apocalypse, they were calling it, right? Where all the retail is moving out of physical spaces. Like they're not renting places in malls and stuff anymore, right? You know, like we work in places like that, we're talking about how it's going to move to a to a rental office model. Do you think that this is going to be kind of this may be like the saving grace for the for the co-working space industry, right? Or do you think that this is kind of just going to be kind of the end of the office building? Well, I mean, we work, you know, I have a, a lot of opinions I have about we work generally. We their original founder, what a piece of work he was. Well, I don't mean specifically we work, but, you know, 
related co-working industry. Yeah, I think that there's everybody's now re- rethinking all of it, right? I mean, if, if there's never been a, a better time for all of us to rethink everything and reinvent ourselves accordingly. I think the best way to do that is to have your market first mindset on and those funny ears up post Easter, if you will, that say uh, that, that pay actively listening to what everyone else is doing and thinking. And how are you going to fit yourself into that, into that world? I do think it's going to change those things. I think I have, I see a lot of people going, I'm not going to go back to a, a co-working space because it's full of people I don't know sitting next to me. So that's one point of view, right? And then the other is, is okay, well, how can we integrate ourselves into a world that's more co-working like, but we own it? Yeah, I think, I think that whole open office concept is finally going to actually die, <laughs> but it may be replaced with something like open office concept with higher walls, you know, or more private office space or something. Sure, maybe with more clear glass and plastic, but you're going to see a change in, in, in how those things get designed and laid out based on, on what's going on. There's probably a lot of fallout from that, too. Like, if you don't have 300 employees coming into the office, you don't need 17 giant printers with binding machines and everything attached to them, and you don't need all of the IT staff to support that, though you need different IT staff to support people remotely. You know, so instead of desktop support staff, you have remote support staff and they need more network engineers. And Right. And how many restaurants around your building are going to be able to survive the, the, the lack of density and traffic as a result of that? That's true. And you know what? I was just having this conversation yesterday with someone and I don't have my, my normal co-host on who would remind me that I constantly going to go off topic, but <laughs> the, um, he's, he's going to love me because I do the same thing. <laughs> what I was saying was I, I was like, if I had a restaurant right now, the first thing that I would be doing right now, if, well, I mean, after telling people I'm still open for takeout and stuff, would be getting rid of half of my furniture and selling it for starters, because you're never going to be able to have that many tables in that small space ever again. You might as well sell your stuff before somebody, before everyone's selling it. And then setting your place up like a fast, casual restaurant so that people can walk in one side, order their stuff, pick it up over here and walk out the other end. You've just described an example of what we were just talking about with respect to WeWork and other corporates, how they're going to redesign their space to make people more comfortable. Yeah, instead of big community tables and it'll be smaller, separated cubes. and That's exactly right. That's exactly right. I mean, there, and, and there's so many industries that are going to be affected. There's very few industries that are going to remain untouched. I, I completely agree with you. I think uh, everybody's going to be affected in one way, shape, or form. We're all going to change some things the same way we did after 9-11. But we'll all adapt and we'll all be fine, assuming we can make it through. And I believe everybody can make it through. Right now, everybody's focused on Maslow's hierarchy. Basic physical needs first for themselves. And for the people that they're responsible for and care about, so they're really literally in survival mode. Like I was talking about with our corporate clients, they're all in triage, just trying to manage an accelerated digital transformation, for lack of a better term. And then after that, they're going to start looking at the results of that. What's the impact? And how's it going to change everything that they do? And what are they going to do differently going forward to, to survive and thrive? I even have some, frankly, saying already to me, you know, they've had to cut a lot of people furlough, layoff, while they intend to bring those people back, they don't intend to bring them all back. They're going to find ways to leverage technology and distribution the way that we're talking about to reduce costs. And the number one cost in any organization is what? It's labor. It's always labor, yeah. So it's going to it's gonna rejigger the economy in, in the same way it did after 08. Especially when you get into kind of civic organizations and large corporations that have a, a very, very large workforce, you kind of get into that hierarchical structure of business where as a contractor, I would see it and I would go into businesses and you see people and they do maybe an hour or two of actual work a day, right? I mean, there, there's always kind of those team dynamics where there's a couple people carrying the team and everybody else isn't doing anything or you get you know, for most organizations that are really big, right? Or you get a lot of people who are 
their position was created for some reason at some point uh, and it's morphed into something else over time. And that may not necessarily be it be a necessity anymore. Right. Absolutely. I mean, you look at the size of the gig economy today. Right. Look at the number of, of and, and the size of it, I think, is a direct impact and result of what happened in 2008, 2009. Uh, so many people did not re-enter the traditional workforce and they went into being a private contractor, working for themselves or working for other people on a 1099 or creating some other world where they could survive and thrive. It's very Darwinian, but it's an adapt or die sort of reality that we all live in. I don't look at it as a at all. I'm very positive and bullish about our future. One thing a lot of people overlook right now is that this is a self-imposed economic crisis. This is not based like 08 was on, on poor fundamentals, you know, on house of cards. So I feel like, feels to me like we will get back on our feet sooner rather than later. It will look different. Certainly industries that are high touch transactional industries like restaurants and hotels and retail stores and leisure activities at large events, et cetera, they will suffer the most for the longest period of time and they will have to change the way they do things. And they're already doing it. Like you said, the last month delivery services are already adopting at a pace at which they never have before. I have a niece that is a, is an onboarding specialist at DoorDash. Okay. She'd never been busier in her life than onboarding restaurants right now who suddenly have understand the value of being a part of the community of DoorDashes, Urban Spoons and Uber Eats and uh, Lyft Lunches and whatever else you want to, you know, Grubhub, et cetera, because we're all doing well there. The drive-through windows at these at these retail restaurants are completely slammed. What does that mean to rethink the footprint of what retail looks like, like you talked about before? Uh, all those things are coming. But I think generally the theme is that everybody needs to take a step back and do two things. So that begins with what can I do right now to extend my run- runway, conserve my capital, solve for those capital needs now, whether it's through raising, borrowing, or selling. And then how do I thrive in that future world when there's adjustments start to be made? And that's where the real opportunities exist. Some of the biggest unicorns that we all know of now, the Dropboxes and the Stripes and the Slacks and the Airbnbs and the Workdays were all started at the bottom of the la- of the last economic downturn, 2008, 9, 10. It's like your Google AdWords and... <laughs> yeah, the same kind of opportunity exists, will exist now. With change comes a whole new set of problems and needs. And you have an opportunity to get out in front of those things and address those needs maybe in a unique and different way. But it's going to require you to think differently as well. You can't just rely on your, your core fit mindset. Don't stay in a fixed mindset. Get yourself into a growth mindset that says that I'm open to all, all possibilities and creative ways of solving these problems. And that's how you can separate yourself right now. Because I promise you, four out of the five people that think that don't do anything about it. It's the other one in five that does something about it that can create a new opportunity for themselves. And I'm being kind when I say four and five. (laughs) Yeah, that's that's really kind, actually. (laughs) Probably more like nine and a half out of 10 that don't do anything with it. Something actually interesting, I had talked on a, on a way back episode from last year. I, I think we were like back on episode like 20 or something. We were talking about kind of forward looking to the future of what's going to happen at the time with kind of voice automation and self-driving cars and where is this all going to lead. And one of them, I was saying, I think it's probably going to be not the end, but it's going to at least cut in half the amount of in-person kind of dining experiences and stuff that people have because you're not going to drive to go pick up your food or go get your coffee because your car can go get it for you. So the car will just go and go to the drive through and the, the people there will do curbside pickup and they'll put your groceries in the car or whatever. It might not even be your car. It might be a rental, right? And stuff shows up at your house when you need it or your car brings you your breakfast and your coffee and you get in and it drives you to wherever you have to go to work, sure. which you may sure. not even have to drive to work yeah. anymore. Right? Sure. That's <laughs> commoditized as well. And it's going to be a race to the bottom like most commodities become and the decision becomes, is it cheaper for me to have Instacart deliver it 
Amazon Prime Now deliver it, DoorDash or Grubhub or Uber Eats to deliver it? Or is it cheaper for me to and faster to send my own car to do it? Or buy a car that's your equivalent of the Uber that you just Uber Eats or whatever. You just have a you you so kind of like um what's that place called? I think it's called Brain. Is that the one that you buy a car but it's just a temporary lease? Like you don't actually buy a car? I don't know. I heard them on a podcast the other day. Several of those. Get around as an example. Yeah, get around and that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. There are plenty of those examples out there. But I think again the point is is that is that everybody now has this chance to figure out how they want to operate and uh, and be a part. Where do they insert themselves into the value chain? Because the overall value chain and, and, and commercial cycle economically is 80% of it's in distribution and production. So where do you want to fit in that world? And, uh, and that's the opportunity that exists. So you had talked about there's kind of six tactics that people can do to generate revenue now. Uh, did you want to talk a little bit about those? Yeah. So that businesses kind of can get an idea and then maybe we can talk a little bit about them more after. Yeah, absolutely. And this this is not something I sat down and just, you know, uh, decided I was going to write. It, it's, it, it's the number one question I've been getting from my startups and from my corporations and, 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 and those that are trying to support them is what can we do right now? Because everybody's concerned about money. So I sat down after that and I really thought about it and I went, all right, if this was my organization, what would I tell my team today? What we can do differently uh, to generate now revenue now? And I came up with like six very specific tactics. This applies to any product, to any market, to any industry, any business model, and whether or not you're looking for investors or you're looking for customers. The same model can apply. So the same set, set of steps. So, so step one is orient your, reorient yourself or just generally orient yourself around the problem, that problem that you think you can solve right now and the person who has that problem that's great enough for it to be a need. Figure out how deep that problem is, how you can solve for it. Uh, and it may, and this is the part that kind of you know blows people's minds sometimes, it may have nothing to do with what you're currently doing. It could be it could be something entirely different, as we call it. You know, there's your core business, there's adjacent businesses, and then there's completely disruptive stuff. And so, yes, it can be around your core stuff, but don't be closed just down to the things that are core to what you currently do. Open your mind up to the things that you can do well, solve right now, where people have a need and you have existing relationships that you can leverage to learn quickly whether or not you can help those people. Right, absolutely. I think one of those things, kind of a good example of that that I've seen locally is is a friend of mine owns a catering business and they've basically turned it into like a dinner box takeout business. Still out of the same catering kitchen and, and all that. But he's making more money than he ever made catering. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's no different than some of the big manufacturers, whether it's whether it's Tesla or three M or uh or or Boeing or anybody else making masks. Well, I just read an article yesterday that Lego is making um, uh, visors. They've pivoted completely off of making Lego and they're making visors. And then they're donating uh, uh, millions of millions of Lego pieces to kids in need looking for not, you know, things to, to do at home while they're, or in sh- while they're sheltering in place. So so we can all do these things. It, it, it remind, you know, obviously the, the beer distributors are making water or sanitation. Can sanitizer. And sanitizer, right? I mean, I remember Anheuser Bush during the Depression and Prohibition was making water products, and during World War II, the amount of manufacturing pivoting that went on was was astronomical because it had to be. And I think when we all look back on this, and I'm very apolitical, right? I don't care about the politics of this. I care about people's lives. I think we're going to find out that human ingenuity, spirit, and drive to solve the problem and help themselves while helping others is going to prove that we, you know, we beat the crap out of this thing and we did a good job. Right. And we're getting ventilators and masks and PPE and all those things into people's hands. We're eventually going to have a test that's going to allow every human to quickly take a test, just like they can take a pregnancy test, for example, and be able to go back to work because they've got the antibody. Right. I'm fairly certain that I got it coming back from my travels to the Middle East and, and Europe back in December. Was it pretty bad? 
Yeah, I had it, and so did my son. Uh, my daughter was off of college. My wife was fine, but the two of us were three weeks of the same kind of symptoms. But it was over Christmas holiday, so we didn't get to see anybody. Yeah, there's there's a lot of people asking like, oh, well, you know, how bad is it really? And I'm like, well, do you remember the last time you had the flu? Because it's worse than the flu, apparently. So, because it's an animal flu, right? With compromised immune systems, it absolutely can be. But, but anyway, the point is, is that, is that we have, you know, this opportunity to, to react quickly and pivot where we can to respond to the needs of the market. We just have to open ourselves up to it and be okay with it. Yeah, I think that we were going to talk about when I say kind of some questions earlier, the one that we're kind of skipping over is, is that I was talking about how everybody says everyone needs to pivot right now. And I don't know if necessarily everybody needs to pivot. Right. But I think you do need to, like you were saying is, is look at what you're doing and looking at what's coming and make sure that you're on the same road. Yeah. Not everybody needs to pivot. I've got portfolio companies that have never been busier because they're doing things in the work from home economy already or, you know, I've got this one budding unicorn called Red Five that does a live video streaming platform. They're like the Twilio for live video streaming, and they are getting nailed. Right? Everybody wants to do live streaming as a result of what's happening. Yeah, we've been doing it. They don't need to be pivoting at all. Zoom Zoom went from ten million to two hundred million users. Yeah, it's crazy. In four weeks, so they don't need to pivot. They need to pivot their security. <laughs> But I will say that 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 many people do, and and I will also say that's not abnormal in any market. Fifty percent of of successful tech startups pivot at least once. A third pivot two or more times. So it's not that big of a deal. I mean, Slack was an internal messaging tool that Sean Butterfield built for his own teams around something else entirely. It wasn't designed to be a product he was going to take to market, but he found out how useful it was. So. Pivoting is absolutely a thing, but again, define what that means. That just means to me being very responsive and adjusting what people want based on the needs in the market because you don't really, you have a choice. There's always a choice, but you need to be open to the problems that your people have because here's the reality of it. In the startup world, 90% of what we take to the market is wrong. And the goal is to be 89% wrong tomorrow based on what we learned today. Now, your product may be fixed or your service, right? I know you have a lot of uh, people in the real estate industry and the mortgage industry that are in your audience. You know, you've got a certain subset of products that you offer and they might be fixed. But is your messaging fixed? No. Is the kind of customer you go after fixed? No. Is the use case of how they buy from you and why they buy from you fixed? Absolutely not. All three of those things can constantly be, a.k.a. pivoted in real time. It's just about you being iterative in how you construct a hypothesis, test it, and learn from it. And I can tell you, the most common characteristic of anybody with a growth mindset is to be a learn-it-all, not a know-it-all, and to have the humility that goes with that. To say, here, I made this, what do you think? Oh, you don't like it? Tell me what you do like. Because what you really want when you're trying to learn is... You're not seeking revenue all the time. You're seeking two things that are more important than revenue. And I know it's a hard thing for people to get their heads around, but you're, you're seeking people's time and you're seeking their truth, time and truth. Tell me about you. What's honestly, tell me what you think of what I can do for you, honestly, and give me the time necessary to learn that. And then if you do those two things, you get their time and you get their truth, you will get to the revenue. But the hard thing is getting that because in today's world, and I don't mean just a COVID world, I just mean in the in the age of social media and, and just how knee-jerk and vitriolic it can be and how it can just dive in directions so quickly, people are afraid to tell the truth if it creates more conflict or work. That's absolutely true. I mean, we talk a lot also about dark social, which they call it dark social because you can't see it, but it, sometimes it's dark social because of how dark it actually is. People, when they're on private messaging do not hold back, right? Because they have that anonymity of of being on social media, but also the security of talking to somebody they already know. And they're like, I'm not going to that restaurant. It sucks. Don't go there. They gave me, you know, food poisoning, whatever, right? Yeah, no, they're right. There's honest, there's honest, objective feedback that can be shared between two people who trust each other and under that cloak of anonymity or, or the whisper in the ear or just a quiet conversation at a barbecue when no one else is listening. And that's what you really want. You know, that's what you want 
you want honest, constructive feedback, and you have to create a world where it makes it easy for them to do that. But so, so tactic one, just to get back to it, is again orient yourself around that. Right, the problem in the person. Then tactic two is narrow your focus down to a really small subset of current and or potential customers that you think might fit that criteria and stay focused on that. Because let's be honest, how many people over say, if you're thinking that I'm going to have to live with this situation and do the best I can with what I have where I am for, say, the next six months, then you need to build a market milestone for yourself that's six months long. That said, in the next six months, I need to get three customers under these circumstances solving this kind of problem in this way who can generate this kind of money for me. And that's all you need to focus on. So now you can reverse engineer your funnel from the bottom up and say, I need three wins that look like this, which means I need to have 10 real opportunities, which means I need to have 50 real conversations around this particular problem and value hypothesis that I'm constructing, which means I've got to reach out to 500 to get those 50 conversations, to create those 10 opportunities, to get those three wins. And you reverse engineer your funnel. It's very difficult to do if you don't already know your numbers and businesses definitely need to be looking at their numbers. You need to know how many people are you reaching to get in contact with someone and how many of those contacts and how often do you have to talk to them before that converts into a sale or revenue? How long does that customer stay a customer for? What's your burn rate? What's your lifetime customer value? Those kind of numbers are things that you need to know to be able to properly make these decisions. And it's okay to take on, as I said before, a non-core offering, what I like to call a service-first mindset. So with my tech companies and with tech in general, when you're building a product, as I told, as I said before, it's usually wrong when you bring it out. It needs a lot of iteration. It needs a lot of work, right? So what can you do right now to solve that problem for your customer, regardless of where your product is? Take a service-first mindset. Right. How can I help somebody like a consultant could help someone? Right. And, you know, I see people because of the the, the structure of our business and our clients, because we have a lot of clients who sell things to real estate agents and mortgage people. I know a lot of them. And the ones that I see that are still doing well right now, like they've still got sellers coming on the market, they've still got buyers. The biggest things that they seem to be doing are continuously reaching out to people and following up, right? Which normally you would think every real estate agent would do, but trust me, they don't. But also they're doing service in the way of, I'm going to pick up X amount of things from this store. Can I drop these off to the people who are in my local contact network? Like I'm going to get coffee for everybody. Or if you have somebody who needs groceries delivered, I will go pick them up for you and deliver them, you know, and these these kinds of things. And those are the people who are making sales now. Absolutely. Being creative. As I said, they're trying to figure out where they fit in the value chain. And they're not a delivery driver. They're a real estate agent, right? But right. by becoming delivery driver, they're now have a reason to stay in touch with those people. And, and that's what's what's getting them the, the sales, right? And they're creating value. And that's the point. So then in tactic three, what you do now is you build this customer profile that says that this kind of person with this kind of problem under these conditions could utilize my products or services in this way today and gain immediate value from that. What does that look like, right? Again, be very much focused on the problem that that profile has. And you might have more than one, and that's fine. Develop three, four, five, six, seven, eight profiles. I don't care. Develop as many as you need. But start with one or two that you want to go against, okay? And then make sure that these are things that you can solve very well right now based on who you are, who you know, what you're able to do. Again, remember, people don't want more work. They want less. Find the things. One of the greatest quotes I ever learned from a very successful person was, find something somebody very important hates to do and offer to do it for them. That's excellent advice. It works. It absolutely works. (laughs) It does. I mean, what are... I'm in the middle, literally, right now of, of, of making one of my most exciting investments I've ever made in a septic tank technology. I, you know, talk about a shitty business. Yeah, I'm um, <laughs> but you get my point, right? Like everybody has to use it. 
right? It's not sexy, but it is something that people need and people don't want to do this manual task. And so you can automate it through this thing that we're doing and, and it's crushing it. I mean, it's growing like crazy and it's, it's obviously uh, resilient in any kind of economic environment because it solves a physical need. That's an example. And then once you do that, so now that you've got, you, you know, you've taken, you've oriented yourself around the problem uh, and the person is tactic one. Tactic two, you focus on a small segment, as tiny a segment as it you can handle with your resources, and you've built a funnel that says, I need three deals over the next six months to stay alive. Now you want to build that profile, that customer, who you can solve it for, and the way you can solve it, and how. The fourth one, tactic four, is actually one of the more challenging ones, but it's to me, it's one of the easier ones, but to many people, it's hard. It's 25 words or less. Tell me what you can do for me right now, today. Construct a hypothesis that says that, hey, Matt, I think I can help you in this way because I've helped others like you and they've seen these kinds of results. I'd love to have a conversation to see if that's the case. Or same thing, but call to action being, do you know anybody who could use this product or you know, who could help, who could learn or, or, or utilize me right now? So that's a constructing a value hypothesis. It's not the only thing. It's the way in the door, right? So now... Before you go out and start talking to people, tactic five is all about how can I monetize this? What can I charge that makes it really easy, easy for people to understand? For example, service mindset. People understand how to pay for labor, right? So now you need to figure out what are your basic needs? What do you absolutely have to make? How are you going to allocate your time and materials towards that? What's it going to cost you to deliver on whatever it is? And then what can you charge that hopefully gets you the deal? And then have to figure that out. And it doesn't always have to be product oriented, but make sure it's a way people are used to paying for this kind of product or service, because that will dramatically reduce the friction associated with getting the deal. And the more friction you can take out of your funnel, the faster uh, you can get customers. Yeah. Even the slightest amount of friction can be a problem. And actually kind of going back to what you were saying about making sure that people like whatever you're going to do helps them use less time instead of take more time. I saw a organization that is having meetings and they have information that's really helpful, like how to apply for PPP loans and and disaster relief and all this information about it. But they're worried about security. So they're asking people to RSVP first before they get the meeting invite. And the form has got to have, I don't know, like it's two pages long and it's got like 30 fields. Oh my God. And then no one shows up. Oh, you still like a bank. I know, like... It's, it's an amazing amount of pay. I mean, you don't have to fill all the fields in, but still people look at it. They go, I'm not going to fill that in. Right. And then they don't go. <laughs> right. That's one of the biggest holdup with the uh, distribution of the money right now from the stimulus plan is the banks are getting in the way and behaving like banks instead of just behaving like a customer experience. I don't know how many times a day I have to tell people that there's a reason Amazon is the most valuable company in the world. It's not because they make stuff. It's because they make us happy. It's because the buy now button. Yes. Sort by price and buy now. That's why Amazon is worth a trillion dollars. That's it. Two things. Exactly. <laughs> and it took years to get there. Making things easy is very hard. I appreciate that. It's no different than Apple. But all they do, they don't make anything at Amazon except all of us satisfied. Right? Right. And that's, and that's the experience. And Bezos has always been completely obsessed with the customer experience from day one. If you go back and watch the 60 Minutes interviews from 20 years ago when they were asking him about how he's going to build a profitable business based on e-commerce when he doesn't make anything. And he said, we're completely obsessed with the customer experience. We're going to do whatever that means at every, at, at any and every moment. And that's what he's done. Same thing applies here. When people have that experience, I don't care what else is going on. People are like calling Jeff Bezos, the devil on, on social media and saying that he's like, He's donating 0. 0.006, so he's an a-hole and, you know, all this kind of stuff. And then you drive by their house and they got six Amazon packages on their porch, right? Because it's convenient, right? We, we find what we focus on. It's convenient to drive through the, the fast food drive through and everybody says, well, I'm on a diet and I'm not going to do this and that and this and that. And then five minutes later, they go, oh, I don't have time. I'm going to go get a burger at McDonald's, right? It's the same thing. Convenience always drives activity, right? Absolutely. You, everybody needs and wants an easy button. But just to that point about sniping at Bezos, you know, isn't that energy that you can place in a different, more constructive area of your life? Yeah, no kidding. I mean, I just I, I stay away from all the negativity anyway. And the longer I live, the 
more attuned I am to people who deliver negative energy and I just avoid them. I got to have a positive attitude because I deal with social media ads. I got to go see all the garbage that people post on them all the time. I got to read it to see if I got to ban them or not. Exactly. You wouldn't believe the stuff. It's just unbelievable. Unbelievable. Every day. I believe you. There's There's this wonderful book by Adam Grant called Give and Take. And it's about three kinds of people that exist in the, in the workplace, givers, takers, and matchers. <laughs> and what's interesting is he studied uh, the success profile of each of these kinds of people. And what he found was is that givers were the top 10 percentile most successful, and they were also the bottom 10 percent. <laughs> That's tough. Yeah. So why is that? It's because the difference is, is the people at the bottom don't recognize takers and cut them off the way they should. Ah, that's interesting. And talking about just like we were talking about Amazon and how convenient it is, I typed in Adam Grant give and take on my other monitor so I can remember to go look up that book and Amazon assistant popped up and asked me if I want to buy it now and click the button. Yeah, there you go. (laughs) Like it doesn't get any more easy than that, right? You said it, I typed it in and I clicked the button and it's going to be at my house. It doesn't get any easier than that. You're absolutely right. I mean, I wonder if there'd be this kind of run on toilet paper if it wasn't for Amazon, but that's okay. (laughs) No kidding. Finally, tactic six, right? So tactic six is is all about, okay, now that I've I've figured out what problem I think I can solve and for whom and how, and I've built a, a very small list of people that I need to convert to survive and thrive for the next six to 12 months or whatever it might be for you, and I've got that customer profile ready, and I've got that value hypothesis at 25 words or less about the problem I can solve for these people and, and why now. And now I've figured out in tactic five how to monetize it. Like how do I think I'm going to charge for that? Now I need to actually go out to the world and tell the story. Tactic six is campaign execution. So since this should be a very focused and finite campaign to a small subset of humans, much less than you probably think, it should be as live and analog as you can possibly make it. I'm not talking about just sending out your traditional email campaigns or even some of your, you may not like to hear this, Matt, some of your traditional ads, but I'm talking about picking up the damn phone and calling people. I'm talking about using live synchronous mediums for interaction, text, Slack, chat, Facebook, social, telephone, Zoom. I don't care. Whatever it is to have a live interaction with people to deliver this very clear and simple message that I think I can help you in this way right now. And I'd love to know if that's possible. Can we have a conversation? Right. We a hundred percent endorse combining advertising and marketing with live interaction. We're always big on networking and person to person and we're right here with you. Yeah. But I think right now in this moment in time, the people that you're going to have the best chance with are people that already know who you are, like you and trust you. And so when you build that small subset of humans, it should be people that you, that know you, like you, and trust you, that maybe hopefully you've done business with in the past, but at least you have brand credibility and a human-to-human relationship, which means that when you do reach out to them and offer something, either they can help you directly or they can point you towards someone that can. And so that means you're, it's a really small group of people that don't necessarily lend themselves to some broad top-of-the-funnel ad campaign but more of a bottom of the funnel approach of calling friends and family, so to speak, and saying, I think I can help you in this way. And then once you get that conversation going, now you need to have a very structured and specific objective of are they a fit or not for right now? Can I help them? Not can can I sell to them or I need to sell them, but can I help them now? And so we have a conversation framework that isn't ours, but it was, de- it was developed by Dr. Neil Rackham and his team 20, 30 years ago for trying to uncover the truth about what situation people have, the problems that they have, the impact it's making on them, and whether or not they need anything. And it's called SPIN. It's a conversation framework. It's S-P-I-N. It stands for situation, problem, implication, and need, right? What are they doing today to address the problem that you think you can help them with? What are the problems associated with the way they're doing it today that you think you can solve for? What quantifiable impact is it having on them that they haven't solved it already? And then ultimately, what do they need and how would it benefit them? And that's not just you asking that question of yourself and trying to write it down and figure it out. It's you asking them and letting them tell you, how do I do this today? What are the problems associated with it? What's the impact and what what need exists, if any, 
And if it does exist, then you have a conversation around that. If it doesn't, if there are problems, then there are problems. Then you move on to the next thing or you find out what problems they do have that you think you can solve for. This is simply an opportunity to have a conversation. Or do you know someone else who has this problem? Correct. Or, oh, you have that problem. You know, I can solve that for you as well, which is just as important. You need to be just as open to them presenting you with an opportunity as you presenting them with one. Yeah, and I think that isn't just for, you know, technology and other businesses and stuff. I think with existing, even traditional businesses, like you're an insurance agent or some kind of service, HVAC, all those kinds of things, you can still be getting a hold of your existing customers and saying, is there something that I can solve for you now? You know, I saw an interesting thing with an insurance agent who went back to his original strategy from like 2006, 2007, where he's just making videos, answering questions that people have about insurance. And, you know, well, I mean, you do a lot of speaking. You may know Ryan Hanley. Um, yeah, I know. Sure. I think, I think, so to me, that's the definition of content marketing anyway. Good, smart content marketing is finding out what questions your customers have and then answering them for them proactively. That's all it is. 100% agree. You have to have the insights in them first. You have to know what those questions are. And then once you do, this is a wonderful time to sit down and focus on answering those questions in certain ways. That's why I'm doing two to three podcasts a day right now. That's why I'm writing articles and working with my content team on all this stuff is because I've never had so much time to do it. And it's long overdue. And I think it's great. Right. And the, there's that whole idea of the kind of the smallest viable audience, right? The Seth Godin version of how do I whisper to the people that I need rather than scream at the masses and then try and find a way to drill down and drill down and drill down from, you know, 100,000 people to get the three I need instead of just talking to 10 people I know to find the three I need. Absolutely. I'm glad you brought up Seth. He's one of my mentors and he has one of the best lines ever, which to me, which is like, there's two kinds of people in the world when you're marketing, those that agree with you and those that don't. Find the ones that agree with you, tell them the truth. You'll nurture them closer to you. And the ones that don't agree with you, they'll nurture themselves away on their own. You don't have to worry about it. Yep. Shun the (laughs) non-believers. Yeah, but don't shame them. No, no, no. You don't shame them. You shun them. (laughs) well it's like that old adage that that 20 of people will still listen to all of your sales pitch and still buy the cheapest one absolutely you don't need to talk to those people (laughs) all right (laughs) somehow i feel like it's higher than that yeah maybe some people say 30 i don't know it's hard to say yeah well but again i think that's something that the seller and the marketer have in their control and that's all about creating that that right customer profile. I call it, especially right now, I call it, I do it with startups and go to market all the time. Don't look for Mr. Right. Look for Mr. Right now. Right. It's, it's the opposite. Yeah. Who can you help today that is ready and willing and able to accept that? help? Because you've got to have the willingness and the ability. You can't just have one. And all those people are willing to listen to your pitch, but they don't necessarily have the ability to work with you right now. And you've got to get out of that. Yeah, you don't know if they're the decision maker or if they even have the financial ability or the time investment or whatever it is that you need to have people do with, you know, whatever it is your product or service is. That's right. And so I think the overarching theme of those six six tactics to generate revenue now is is I don't believe generally a lot of people say only the strong survive in these kinds of situations. I don't agree. I think it's the most resourceful, not the people with the most resources, but the people who are most resourceful. And to me... That's what it's all about. Can you be creative? Can you be resourceful? Can you figure this out? And here's a good framework for you to go to work on right now and find out what problem you can solve for people who are ready, willing, and able for you to solve it today. But it has to be a need. It can't be a want. Because in moments like these, people are only buying needs, not wants. I know that the outlook in a lot of industries and for a lot of people, you know, if you have friends getting laid off from their jobs and family members and stuff, it can look pretty grim. But you have to remember that there are businesses that are booming, right? There are some industries that are still out there crushing it. There's some who have not been affected at all. There are people out there who have money, who are spending money and people still need things. So like you're saying, see if you can, if you can find a way to help those people, those needs and if you're just in a in a business where maybe they don't need something that you have now, that reaching out to them and and building, setting yourself up for growth later is something that 
I know our company is doing right now. And I've talked to a lot of other companies who are doing that. They're like, we just want to kind of maintain and survive right now and restructure everything, build our process, you know, figure out what we need to do in the future so that we can have more growth once this kind of passes over. That's right. I think that that's what I mean about survive now and thrive later. So when you that's what the big core, that's what the smart ones are doing. Sean, I 100 percent appreciate your time. I know we've kind of gone a little a little over our, our original allotted time. So I really appreciate you staying on and talking with us. I think this is really going to help out a lot of people. It's truly my pleasure, Matt. I hope it does. Anybody who can take anything from it, please. Absolutely. Sean, is there anything that we haven't gone over that you think would be a benefit to our listeners just quickly? I know I don't want to use up much more time. Well, I think just emotionally, people have to recognize the impact that stress has on their ability to make decisions and take appropriate action and do the best you can to find ways to calm your stress and put yourself in a mode where opportunity is is in front of you and that you can get through this. We will get through this. This too shall pass. I've seen it before. and We'll see it again. We are not being asked to go fight for our country. We're, asked, we're being asked to stay home and lay on the couch and watch Netflix. There have been worse times. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so hang in there. But I think, like I said, that's that having the right mindset right now uh, and trying to manage your stress. And then for those around you, you know, don't forget about the people who look up to you and, and look at you every day for you to set an example, whether that's as a leader or a manager, a individual contributor or a, a father, a mother, a brother, a sister, you know, a spouse and make sure that you do. You take care of yourself and those around you first. John, I really appreciate your time. Sean Shepard from Growth X and Growth X Academy. Thank you for coming on. And uh, like I said, I really, really appreciate you helping everybody out. And we're going to get this out so people can listen to it right away and uh, start trying to pivot if they need to and uh, use your strategies to help them uh, survive and thrive. Thanks, Matt. I really enjoyed it. This has been Digital Marketing Masters with Matt and Carrie Rouse. For notes and a transcript of this episode, go to hookseo.com forward slash podcast. Now stay tuned for a preview of our next episode of Digital Marketing Masters. Join us next week as we speak with David Schneider from shortlist.io. Digital Marketing Masters is brought to you by Hook SEO Digital Marketing. Our show is produced by Matthew Rouse and Scott Burson. Mixed and edited by Silent Outburst Productions. I'm your announcer, Daniel D. Craig. We would love to hear your thoughts. Please leave us an honest review with your podcast provider. Your reviews help us help more business leaders just like you.